Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galetti. Welcome to a special edition of Articles of Faith. This is a special episode because we are following up with the conference presenters at the recent Fair Mormon Conference in 2014. And the first one that we're going to get to is a presenter, uh, Russell Stevenson, who presented on essentially the history of blacks in the priesthood and the history of that in context of Mormonism and Americana. He is the author of the book, uh, Elijah Abel's uh, Black Mormon. Is that titled right? Black Mormon, the story of Elijah Abel's. The story of Elijah Abel's. I got it backwards. And the forthcoming book? Yeah, forthcoming book is uh, For the Cause of Righteousness, A Global History of Blacks and Mormonism. Excellent. So just to kind of give a brief overview, and I mean one or two minute overview of what you did present, let's do that followed by answering some of the questions and the content that frankly we just didn't have time to get to at the conference, which is really the reason we're doing this is because there were some pieces of information that were absolutely critical to the presentation that just didn't have any time to get to. So Starting off, one or two minute overview on what you did go over. Right. So, so briefly, I uh, <clears throat> I offer a discussion of like the the early ideas of race within Mormonism. Um, you know, the kinds of things that Joseph Smith was saying, the kinds of things that other church leaders were saying, and how this led to a a racial culture within Mormonism that. That tended to, that lent itself towards the exclusion of the African American population, and I, I discuss like the role that Brigham Young specifically played in this. And as it happens, he was pretty uh, pretty late to the game, as we say. Um, you know, other church leaders such as Parley P. Pratt, W. W. Phelps, Zebedee Coltrane, they had uh, established their racial views long before Brigham Young ever did. In fact, uh, Brigham Young was fairly. Uh, fairly supportive of blacks being a part of the priesthood body as late as March of 1847. So essentially the core, the core of your talk was to talk about this history, but set the real foundation for the discussion that people had. Uh, I say people, it included church leaders as well as the mass uh, of church individuals. In fact, uh, the, most of the conclusion of the talk that you gave at conference had to do with this idea of a collective responsibility with respect to the priesthood ban and racial views. Why don't you expand on that real quick? Well, that yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, I talk about this idea of a collective responsibility, um, not in an effort to you know deflect any kind of um, any kind of accountability on the part of church leaders, but I, I point to it because um, historically speaking, that is where the priesthood ban um, is rooted. Um, you know, in summer of 1847, you know, Brigham Young, he was far removed from uh, from the settlement of Winter Quarters. And in Winter Quarters, there had been an African-American man named William McCary. He had married a, a white Mormon girl, and he began to implement a, a form of interracial polygamy. And this scandalized everybody, and he was eventually run out of town on a rail along with his white wife. And it was in this context in which uh, you first see the uh, an articulation of the priesthood restriction. Um, you know, you have this white mob of Latter Day Saints that are outraged, and you know, they're approaching their local church leaders, namely Parley P. Pratt and Orson Hyde, saying, "How how can you possibly let somebody like this into our community?" And uh, and in response to that, Parley P. Pratt and Orson Hyde uh, both 
said, well, actually, uh, you know, from here on out, we're, we're not going to do so. And Parley P. Pratt specifically said um, it is because of his uh, Hamitic uh, ancestry that he is not eligible to hold the priesthood. Because he was a descendant of Ham. Yes. So in this, res- is, is there essentially a narrative going on then that almost mirrors or emulates this idea that just like the early saints had an opportunity to live the collective uh, application of the law of consecration with the United Order and things like that, but found that they weren't either worthy or able to live it, is that the same type of thing that happened with the inclusion of Africans? Uh, I, w- I would say that they're, they're ultimately different things. Um, when I speak of sure. collective responsibility, uh, I'm suggesting that it wasn't as though the Latter-day Saints received some sort of letter or revelation you know, from uh, Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or anybody saying, from here on out, we are going to exclude African-Americans and, and then Latter-day Saints obediently went lockstep. That's just not how it happened. It ended up being a collaborative process. You know, you have a a group of white Latter-day Saints who are creating an environment in which an exclusionary policy could easily arise and could easily take hold, and then Parley P. Pratt gives voice to it, and then Orson Hyde backs up Parley P. Pratt. So this was more of a a grassroots practice rather than a top-down revelation. That's that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. One of the comments, or I don't even know if it's a question in the very beginning of your presentation, was this idea of defining racism. So since we're having a discussion today on racism, mm-hmm. what is racism? Today's version of that versus versus what was happening in Brigham Young's time is very different. Mm. But for the sake of our conversation, let's define it. Right. So defining it within the context of 19th century America? Well, within the sake of our discussion, I mean, okay. So, um, well, typically, um, you know, the term racism refers to um, at least it's a very complex term. Believe it or not, there's more than meets the eye, but it, it refers to assigning um, certain characteristics to groups of people based either on skin color, national origin, or ethnicity, and it typically involves an element of power. Right. I mean, it's one thing to be prejudicial and say, okay, well, a certain group of people are a certain way, and that's just what I believe. And it's quite another to say a certain group of people are a certain way, and therefore I'm going to place them into a certain box, and I'm going to compel them to live in a certain way. But, but racism, um, it's, you know, it's about you know, national origin, ethnicity, skin color. It involves prejudice, but it also generally involves like putting... A, a group of people based on those characteristics in their place. One of the concerns that I have in, in considering this subject is is the idea that Brigham Young, while he may have been a flawed individual, uh, that, that we begin to discount everything else that he did. This was by no means a hallmark of his presidency. These were uh, some isolated comments that he made uh, in in a much larger context of a man who mm-hmm. was able to build the church. So the fear then becomes, how do we look at Brigham Young as a prophet in spite of these different things? Uh, is, there, is there a way to put into context this, these comments of racism without diminishing the greatness that he did? Right. Or the severity of being racist. Well, certainly. And or you, making racist comments, I should say. I am entirely comfortable with acknowledging that Brigham Young gave voice to and entertained um, racial 
uh, insensitivities. Really what was a core part of what was missing from the time that, that you had allotted was how someone might be able to remain faithful and see President Brigham Young as a prophet in spite of saying some what we would term today very racist things. Right, and you know, it, that Brigham Young struggled with and eventually succumbed to racial insensitivities. It's an undisputed matter of the historical record. In fact, and to some degree, the church recognizes that yes. with their recent Gospel Topics article yes. uh, on they, blacks and the priesthood. They, you know, they, they give reference to his uh, January and February speeches made in 1852, which you know, is, they, they are the first public articulation of the priesthood restriction. He gave it before the, the territorial legislature. And, you know, as I've been doing the finishing touches on my forthcoming book, For the Cause of Righteousness, uh, I've had occasion to reflect on how I personally, you know, view Brigham Young. Uh, I, my fundamental belief is that the races of mankind are equal in, you know, in privilege and love before God. So, you know, embracing the gospel as I do, I, I just, I can't say otherwise. So I think about, you know, could I have ever sustained Brigham Young as the president of the church? And for me, the word sustain, it's a very important word. And it doesn't always mean what we, what we assume that it means. You know, you look at the etymology, and it's from an old French root, a soutenir, uh, which originally meant to hold up, bear, suffer, or endure even. I think it's also noteworthy that the word sustenance comes from a late related word. You know, in Webster's 1828 dictionary says that it means to bear, to uphold, to support as a foundation su uh, sustains a superstructure or, or, or pillars. So does sustaining mean that every word that comes from our leader's mouths uh, has, you know, the imprimatur of, you know, of a divine mandate? That That's just not a doctrine that is, that can be, justified in any kind of scripture or even, you know, from, from presence of the churches, of presence of the church themselves. J. Reuben Clark, for example, said that it has been known for presidents of the church to, you know, to get caught up in their own ideas. He acknowledged this quite publicly. So I think that's an important starting point is acknowledge, acknowledging that Brigham Young was as susceptible to passions and weaknesses like we all are. So when we ask the question how one can be how can one can sustain a prophet or in this case specifically mm -hmm. how can one hold fast to a testimony that Brigham Young was a prophet in spite of comments that are again today we would view incredibly distasteful if president monson said these things we he he would be publicly ostracized even by members of the church today i would think to some degree uh, certainly so and so it seems almost kind of hard to picture it kind of hard, hard to stomach how one could be that way so I, i'm interested then how, how do you how do you navigate that sure well you know the, the first step in the process to, is to always be aware of what we call presentism and you know, historians talk about presentism as a tendency to view events and uh, and circumstances of the past through the moral lens of 21st century America. Now, I point this out not in any way to, um, to excuse Brigham Young in the least, because I strongly feel that we need to hold him as well as uh, the white mob in, um, you know, in the Mormon settlements in Iowa accountable for, for the things that they said and they did. Um, but uh, let's, let's recognize that, that, too, Brigham Young, at least in many of his comments, would not have been considered to be a radical 
as far as his views on race in America at the time. But again, Mormons hold themselves to a higher standard. So, uh, you know, we can't just say, well, everyone believed that. Well, that doesn't matter because Latter-day Saints, they they call themselves an exceptional people, a peculiar people. Um, So how can we possibly sustain a prophet who believes these things? Uh, I look at a talk that um, Elder Neil L. Anderson gave, you know, some time back called a, a trial of your faith. And in this talk, he gives us a couple of, uh, of stipulations on what makes doctrine doctrine. Uh, the first is he says, quote, the doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the first presidency and quorum of the 12. The second is that true principles are taught frequently and by many. So we look at whether Brigham Young's comments Fit those two stipulations. Well, we find on the first one, it, 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 they clearly don't. In February of 1852, Brigham Young attributed the priesthood restriction to the fact that um, African Americans are descended from Cain. That line of thinking was somewhat unusual within American society uh, at the time. Most people would have said it's because of the, uh, the curse of Ham. And what you see is over the course of, uh, of Mormon history, the rationale for the priesthood restriction, it was incredibly fluid. People used a number of different approaches to this. In later years, you have church leaders insisting that it was due to some kind of a neutrality or perhaps being less valiant in the, in the pre-mortal Lukewarm, life. Even. Yeah. Right, lukewarm, as, as many, uh, many have said. And then yet others, such as Parley P. Pratt, had said that it was, it was, in fact, the curse of Ham, as as other Americans said. And then finally, in you know, in later generations, the 1960s and 1970s, people began to say, well, it was because, we, well, we, we don't know. We just don't know where it came from. So if we're going, you know, if this is going to be really true doctrine, we should be able to say, all right, this is why it was. This is a revelation saying why it was. And we, we should be able to hang our hat on this. Uh, but we just can't. So... On the first point, it fails the Anderson test. On the second point, it's taught frequently um, and by many. As Sterling McMurrin said in 1960, he said, yes, this comes up on occasion, but it's not a defining aspect of who the Mormon people are. Based on what we know Revelation to be, we know how Revelation happens in this church. There's a process. It just doesn't match up. There's, there is no section of the Doctrine and Covenants saying that blacks cannot hold the priesthood. All we have is an originating comment from Brigham Young in, um, in early 1852 and then subsequent comments that basically repeat the logic, uh, his original logic and then later comments that take variations on that logic. And at the, at the end of the day, uh, no one can really agree where this came from. And I, for one, I mean, if, if we can't do that, I, I cannot accept that as a revelatory, uh, revelatory statement. Well, as far as going back again to this idea that there's there's still going to be questions that that remain, I'm sure. But what were some of the other questions that hap- that that came up in the conference that you didn't have have time to address? Anything specifically? You know, the main issue that I could sense people had is, you know, how can we, you know, value these, you know, these men, Brigham Young, others, as being watchmen on the towers, where when you know, clearly they, uh, they, they seem to be at best, you know, in the mainstreams of society and at times, especially, you know, in, in more modern times, kind of behind the curve. This is where I feel it's so important that we, we look at the Mormon community as a whole. 
You know, we, we look at, you know, Brigham Young and others as being a, an integral part of that community. Uh, we can't draw this hard and fast line between prophets and people. Like, they're part of the same organic unit. As we learn from Scripture time and time again, uh, the Lord is not going to compel his community to be something that they do not want to be. You know, we often use the phrase, you know, a prophet is only a prophet when he's acting as such. Uh, but we can go even further. And we can say that a prophet can only be a prophet to the extent that his people want a prophet. Which was very true even in the Old Testament times. Yes. There, the, the children of Israel, they said, let not God speak with us. Right? They were limiting themselves. And based on the actions that we see in winter quarters and the surrounding Mormon settlements, uh, the Latter-day Saint community, they were just not game for having a, a black priesthood holder in their midst, uh, and especially one that was going around practicing uh, you know, interracial polygamy. A multiple unpopular idea. Yes. <laughs> a very layered unpopular concept. Well, with that all being said, one of the questions that some people uh, have approached with this topic to me personally and in the past before the conference is this idea that if there was no divine revelation instituting the ban, why was there a need for divine revelation to essentially re- lift it? Well, you know, we have all kinds of examples of, um, of the Latter-day Saints engaging in practices and beliefs uh, that, were, that were patently wrong, right? I mean, you can list them off, you know, pride, materialism, um, you know, greed, selfishness, um, uh, lack of charity, all these things. And obviously they did not come from revelation. But yet we have revelations throughout the standard works condemning these very things. Um, so uh, I see official declaration number two as a call to repentance. Um, you know, it's not merely changing a policy or a practice, but it's calling for the Latter-day Saints to live up to the vision that the Lord intended them to live up to, you know, when he gave them, uh, you know, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants in which he said, it is not right for one man to be in bondage to another, and all are alike unto God, both black and white, bond and free. Is there any other questions that you can remember? I recall the question about Brigham Young's views on Native Americans. To what extent you know, he engaged in discriminatory practices against them? Um, we don't have a priesthood restriction on um, on Indians in, in any way. Uh, you know, obviously, you know Brigham Young saw the Native Americans as being uh, degraded and backward. But at the end of the day, they were a covenant people. You know, they you know they were the Lamanites, and there was this bright, illustrious future that that was laid out for them. And if they ever participated in any kind of uh, what Latter-day Saints would have called barbaric practices you know, stealing or, or killing, Brigham Young said, listen, they, they really don't know any better. And this is, what they've been, this is what they've been raised to believe, and we need to reach out to them. You know, it, it was definitely coming from a place of white privilege, you know, call it a white man's burden sort of thing. I mean, we need to reach down to this you know, lower <laughs> order of human being. Uh, but the, it was definitely a different dynamic with Native Americans. Um, than it was with African-Americans. When we talk about prophets today looking to the collective, you reference official declaration too as being a call to repentance, much like you would have a call to repentance on other issues. Do you feel that there is a a place or a possibility that Brigham Young in his dealing with the African-Americans was speaking similarly, that the reason they didn't have this ban was because he felt 
that the, as a collective people, they needed to repent. Is there anything to that thesis? Um, we we don't see any evidence where you're saying, you know, we're just waiting for the African-American community to repent, and then once that day okay. happens, um, you know, there nothing, there's nothing like that in his comments. Uh, what he does say is that, uh, African Americans will receive the ble- the full the full blessings of the gospel once all of Abel's descendants have the opportunity to you know receive their mortal experiences and and receive blessings on their end. So from Brigham Young's perspective, there would become a time in the future when blacks would receive it, but it wasn't it wasn't contingent upon their actions. It was contingent upon uh, the state of Abel's posterity. Okay. In whatever world they were living in. So, in some respects, as much as Brigham Young was claiming to be, uh, to to have these preferences, or how I don't know how you wish to call it, he was certainly also open to the idea that that this ban or this limitation, rather, that's probably a better word, a limitation that was being placed on blacks would someday be lifted. Oh yes, he absolutely believed that someday African Americans would receive. All the blessings that you know that other Latter-day Saints had, and and many more, and you know I I do feel it's necessary to emphasize yet again that we can't see Brigham Young within a vacuum. Vacuum, you know, for for years, you know, the Latter-day Saints had been creating a community and creating a discourse in which um, this kind of thing was becoming uh, uh, becoming more and more inevitable. You know, Joseph Smith, he had had a rather difficult time convincing the Latter-day Saints to accept Elijah Abel's. Um, you know, one of his close confidants, Zebedee Coltrane, had said that when Joseph Smith ordered him to administer washings and anointings to Elijah, that he had initially resisted. And that when he finally did so, it, it was such an unpleasant feeling. He said, I, I've never had such unpleasant feelings in, in all my life. And Zebedee Coltrane is, is just one of, of several examples. So when Joseph Smith died... It removed a a force that allowed the African Americans to you know to be included in the Latter Day Saint community. Brigham Young tried to carry that on, but once he left, and then you know the mob action took place in, in Winter Quarters. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. It's common practice when we encounter difficult or nuanced questions and situations in history, let alone church history, to often assign blame to certain people for certain things as if those reasons will somehow make it more palatable. Mm. Is there any way that you feel that you can assign things to certain people for certain things and help people find peace to this question? Right. Well, I, I think above all, even when we assign responsibility or accountability, and those are the terms that I, I prefer to use. Sure. Okay. Whenever we do that, we need to never allow ourselves to reduce a person to that action because every single one of us is a, a complex person. We have many sides to us. Uh, I, at, the, uh, at the presentation at FAIR, I, I told the story of a relative of mine who also entertained racial uh, sensitivities uh, or insensitivities as often uh, the case was. We all adored him. He was a, a tremendous human being in a lot of ways, a, a real, you know, work your fingers to the bone sort of man. But we all knew that he had this weakness. We all knew that he was guilty of racial insensitivity and you could easily make the argument racism. But, you know, even, even in his conversations with us, whenever someone would say, hey, would you ever want this perspective to be passed on to your children? 
he would always say, no, I don't. So he was aware of his weakness. Now, we don't have you know, that kind of self-awareness of, uh, on the part of Brigham Young, at least, um, at least for most of his life. And um, we can still, though, see Brigham Young as being a complex person who was capable of, of doing tremendous things and, um, in spite of his weakness, was still called upon to hold the church together at a time when uh, that was not the easiest thing to do. And David O. McKay once said, when the Lord calls the prophet, he does not unmake a man. And I, as, as awful and as horrific as, as racism is, unfortunately, it was a, a sin that many, many Americans participated in in the 19th century, and Brigham Young was not immune to that. So the question is going to come up by some, based on your comments and your assertions of, of Brigham Young's character. What do you think of Brigham Young uh, and his role in the gospel, uh, his role in the church? What, what was Brigham Young to you? You know, one thing that I've come to believe in over the course of my life is I believe in flawed giants, even deeply flawed giants. Um, I've known them, I've worked with them, and, and I respect them. And I, as a believing Latter-day Saint, a card-carrying Latter-day Saint, I accept Brigham Young as the man that, that God wanted to lead the church at that time, um, you know, in that place, um, in spite of, of this profound weakness that he had. Um, I know that uh, in my own life, I would like to think that God is willing to work with me and that I can maybe do some good and, you know, carry out whatever jobs he has for me to do in, in spite of, of my weaknesses with, that I'm too, uh, all too familiar with. Well, Russell, uh, thank you very much for coming in and talking about uh, your presentation at the FAIR conference. We want to encourage people to go to the fairmormon.org website and follow what is going to be transcriptions, uh, audio and video files eventually of your presentation. So hopefully if they didn't get a chance to go, they can go there and get some context for our discussion today. Um, and, and if not, hopefully there's been something to, uh, there for people to, to think about. And I thank you again for, for coming in. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galetti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.